This episode of First Things First was recorded live on stage at Design Thinkers in Toronto with Bonnie Siegler about her new book, Dear Client. Siegler was voted one of the 50 most influential designers working today by GDUSA. Her career spans a wide range of influential clients and projects like the Trump parody autobiography, You Can't Spell America Without Me. Other recent clients of her design studio, Eight and a Half, include The New Yorker, Late Night with Seth Meyers, and the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation. In this episode, we talk about the good and the bad when it comes to working as a designer with clients. Please join me in welcoming Bonnie Siegler. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start with the obvious question, which is why did you write this book? So um, I've owned my own company for 25 years, and over the time we've had a lot of, you know, I'll just say frustrating clients. But there was a pattern in it. And in the beginning, we would just think, oh my God, what a jerk. (laughs) And then I started to think over decades that maybe they weren't jerks. Maybe they just had no idea what their role was, and how to get the best work out of us. The mistakes that they made were so obvious and pissed us off so much and made us so resentful that it got in the way of us doing our job. So I decided to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, what if they just don't know? Nobody's ever told them, this is how you work with a creative person. So so I wrote this book. And then there's the how, because the, you didn't just write the book, you designed it as well. So how did you write this book? Or how did you produce this book? Let's so say. I had the idea for the book um, about four years ago. And I knew it was a good idea. And I, it was really like a, a social mission. I thought I could help designers all over the world by teaching clients how to work with us. And then um, I procrastinated for three years, which is a really long time to procrastinate. <laughs> I had it on my, you know, desktop. I had it on my to-do list and I just could never, I was too scared to start because it was a good idea and I felt good about it. But if I did it badly, that was really scary to me. So then finally one day I I was so afraid that someone else would do it. Um, (laughs) I just forced myself and then I wrote it in about six months and designed it in a couple of months as well. So it was a it was a long longer process than it needed to be. <laughs> and when you're writing and designing a book, it obviously affords you opportunities that a normal situation wouldn't give either a writer or a designer. Were right. there things that you felt? No, could... I because I design a lot of books. I decided to do it, you know, by the book, no pun intended. Which is to say, I finished the manuscript and had it approved before I started designing. Because it would just be too difficult to do both simultaneously. I couldn't write it. And I also couldn't, just like I always say to publishers when they ask us to to design books, you know, they say, oh, just just design it. We'll get you the content later, Mm -hmm. which is absurd. So I needed to know what the final product was before I could tackle it. I didn't know, for example, in the beginning if there would be images in it or not. Um, And when I was done writing it, I realized that there couldn't be any images in it, that it had to be text only. And so where a designer in a typical situation who's getting someone else's words has to then get up to speed with those words and think about how to respond to those words. In this right. case, you are your own yes. designer. So what did you come to when it came to the design of the book? What sorts of things were you considering? Well, I wrote it in very short chapters like so that people could... I really wanted it to be easily accessible so you could just open to any section and get a complete thought. 
Um, so that was to make that really clear when you picked up the book in the bookstore and to notice that. I thought that was hugely important so that it didn't seem intimidating. It was really easy to access the information. And very early on, I realized I wanted it to be, it represents fundamentals of working with graphic designers. So I, I did it in just CMYK. So the that whole was an thing, aha moment for me this morning when I, I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> so the whole thing, yeah, I used no other colors, but... CMYK. That was a big decision to make. And it, and, it, and it made it easy, actually, going forward then. Like, once you make that one big decision that defines everything, it was very helpful. So then moving into the subject matter of the book, uh, just by starting, because it is about clients, obviously, can you describe maybe a, a specific memorable experience you had working with a client that you know, really started the process of you thinking about this, this, this book? The Most of the client interactions that started this process were negative, but when I started writing it, I, I wanted to think about a really good example. And early on in our company, we were hired to design a book for Oprah Winfrey. This is probably before the book club thing, but it was scary for all the obvious reasons. And I thought she would be the most difficult client we ever had. It was totally intimidating. And we did the first pass on the book. It was for, she made a movie called Beloved. And we had her diary that she kept during the... They, she wanted to make a coffee table book using her diary and the stills from the shoot, of which they were amazing. So we did a f- sort of first pass on it, like 20 or 40 pages, and sent it to her. And then, I, I, I mean, I had no... She could have just, you know, somebody could have called and said, Oprah says no. Like, that could have been a response. Like, we had no idea what to expect. But what she did do was call us, and she dialed herself, like she didn't have someone say, like, hold for Oprah, um, which people do. And, and I always answer the phone like, hello? And then it's like, hold for so-and-so. It's so frustrating. So she called herself and was waiting on hold for me. And then we went through the whole thing, and she asked me questions and told me what she liked and told me what she, this is the huge thing, she told me what she didn't understand. And so I got to tell her, you know, explain it and try and, you know, why we made certain decisions. And half the time she said, oh, that makes sense. I like that. I see how that will, you know, play out later on. And half the time she said, I still don't like it, which was fine. But I got to explain myself, which you so rarely get to do, especially when getting notes back from a client. Usually it's just like, you know, I like page seven, I hate page 10, whatever it is. So just that conversation that was respectful of what we did. I mean, I was, you know, in awe of her. I was secretly hoping to get a car. Um, <laughs> I didn't, but she did send us a really nice food basket when it was all done. <laughs> but it was a really great experience, and it almost has never happened again. <laughs> so then on the flip side of that, obviously, you've had some less than Oprah-like experiences. <laughs> yes. And without going into names or details, uh, you, uh, there are a few responses in your book to some of these experiences, which is really the, yes. in many ways the culmination of the book. And so there are a few ideas in this book that I find um, immediately just you start to, before you read the, the page itself, you, there's something very provocative in many of the cases with the title. So um, one of them is uh, you shouldn't care what your spouse thinks. It's we don't care what your spouse thinks. We don't thinks. care what your spouse thinks. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but like you show someone something, you have a good presentation, and then the next day you get a call and they say, I showed my 12-year-old daughter, or I showed my wife last night, and she thinks, and then they go on to tell us the changes we should implement because they showed somebody 
the product of, you know, weeks or months of work, creative briefs, meetings, discussions, conversations that all ended up in this place. And they want us to implement the response from someone who looks at it on an iPhone for a few minutes. And usually we hear, oh, they know more about this stuff than I do, which is, you know, frustrating. So, so the chapter just, I mean, everybody gets new ideas from everywhere. And we, you know, if it makes the project better, I love new ideas. So the advice I give to clients is if you've shown your 12-year-old daughter and she has a great idea, own it. And when you call the next day to say it, just leave her out of it. Leave your wife out of it. Leave your second cousin out of it. It doesn't, I don't care that it came from them. In fact, it ruins it that it came from them. But if you really believe in it and want us to implement that change, then just say, I had an idea last night and I, I think it could be good. Would you explore it? Rather than passing the buck to someone else that we've never met, that we've never spoken to. And they could have terrible taste for all we know. We know nothing about them. So own your opinions if you want us to implement those changes. So another of the ideas that you talk about is, is why it's not such a good idea to have someone, specifically a client, over your shoulder as you work. The chapter is don't ask to sit with us while we make changes. Have you guys had that? <laughs> I mean, could there be anything more annoying? It's it, Who wants just anybody, an accountant, a bookkeeper, anybody, who would want someone sitting behind them while they're on their computer working? It makes no sense, and it doesn't make it faster. It makes you nervous. It makes you, like, clumsy. And then also they chime in as you're going, oh, no, no, not there. Which also, And most of what we do is in our heads. You can't actually see our thinking that goes into what we do on the screen. So it makes no sense to sit behind us while we make changes. And this isn't just clients. Also, there's a blog called Hovering Art Directors, <laughs> where designers <laughs> take pictures of art directors hovering behind designers. So it's internal, too. Um, it's just a terrible idea to sit behind anybody while they're designing. So just to kind of play that out, out a bit, it goes to the idea that in some ways, creativity is a solitary exercise. In other ways, it's highly collaborative. You know, for you, what's the kind of balance between those two forms of creativity? Well, thinking isn't collaborative. And I feel like when you're on, it's like you and the machine are one. It's like just taking what's in your brain and executing it. But then getting together with your colleagues and talking about everything when it's laid out on the table, not while you're in the process of doing it. Right. So there's just a, there's a time for everything. And would you extend that to like, just thinking about the process of trying to bring clients into the collaborative circle, so to speak? Uh, it feels, in some experiences, it's very positive to have them there with you at the table as you're kind of imagining what the outcomes could be. In other cases, it somehow it feels inappropriate or it's more like there's a line where it becomes less valuable to have people who are, say, non-designers in the room with you trying to think through a problem, but then there are times when it's highly valuable. And so for you, what's the... I, I mean, I, I always spend a lot of time interviewing and having meetings with clients before we begin. And I think that's their moment to give us as much input as possible, including if they have ideas, just to throw them out there. Like, you know, I'm not a designer, but this is what I was thinking kind of ideas. That's all good. And there should be plenty of time for that before we actually begin the work but not while we're working. And then, of course, during the presentation, everything should be out on a table. I think all meetings, all creative presentations should be in person, no matter what. 
And that's a great moment to sit and discuss and spend hours going over things and finding out why they think what they think and what they're hoping for and what this doesn't achieve or what it does achieve. But there's not a collaboration while you're conceiving of something. Right. The point you made about all meetings should be in person is very interesting today with Skype and yes. go-to meeting and all this sort of stuff. And it's becoming more and more the way people do things. I fully agree with you, but why would you say it's so important to be in, in person? First of all, I don't think people should ever hire a design team without meeting the design team. I'm very against account executives. I mean, they can be there too, but they can't take the place of the client meeting the creative. I mean, I know it's impossible sometimes, especially if you're in different states or different countries, but that first meeting should be in person and the first presentation should be in person. You have to be in a room with someone, and email sucks. It's the worst thing in the world. I mean, what I always do is have someone else read my emails to themselves, because as I'm writing an email, I have my intonation that I'm imagining, but the person reading it doesn't have that. They don't have the luxury of that. So sometimes someone will read it in my office and say, that sounds mean, but I didn't mean it as mean. So it's just email is absolutely the worst, and especially for design comments back and forth. I like Skype. It just doesn't replace being there in person. Right. Just the nuance of the facial expressions and the Yeah, the, the body language, language the body everything. Language. Right. What is a granimal? Oh, did you guys not have granimals here? Granimals are, um, there was this uh, line of clothing for children. I think it was at Sears where you could match if you, like, so it was <laughs> children's clothes and the pants all had tags on them like a lion or a bear or <laughs> a monkey. And then you could match it with any shirt that had a lion or a bear or monkey. So all lion pants went with all lion shirts. Um, and it made it very easy to dress children. But clients sometimes think that design presentations are like her animals and they want to take one piece of one solution and combine it with another piece of another solution. But it never works out because design solutions are whole entities. And you can't just mix and match like a Chinese menu. It just doesn't work that way. But it's so often desirable. So what we always do if somebody asks us to do that is tell us what you like about this one and what you don't like and tell us what you like and don't like about that one. And we'll go away and try and come up with a solution that manages all of those things rather than just shoving a monkey head on a bear's body. <laughs> right. And so is that something, because I, you do hear on the flip side sometimes a client will say, uh, you know, as you said, like I, I like elements of this, I like elements of that. And so I think early on in a, in a designer's career, you're trying to avoid that and say, well, they're different ideas. And you're not talking about that because that's, that is a part of the process sometimes. As you say, it's more about the principles of one thing. Right. But leave it to the expert, to the design team to figure out right. how those principles marry up and become. Exactly. And maybe, you know, some, there will be some aspect in that third, you know, solution. But it's like Frankenstein. What I say in the book is you wouldn't, like, if there's a flavor you like in one recipe and a flavor you like in another recipe, you wouldn't just put them together because you like them in their unique settings. It just won't work that way. So it's the same with design solutions. Right. Okay, so we were talking earlier about how um, you had been to a workshop recently where there was a warning saying, enter at your own risk. And uh, do you want to talk about that, perhaps? Sure. Um, so I did a workshop at Adobe Max last week. It was making signs of resistance. So it was a poster-making workshop. And they put a sign outside my room that said, participate at your own risk. I just, I was, I was telling Patty, you guys have been all so amazing and welcoming and open to like these 
ideas of the power of protest and everything, and it was less so in America, or fearful. They were fearful of, I don't know what the risk was. I mean, we were making stuff, so maybe exacto blade incidents. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but it seemed like the risk was some kind of free speech thing. And it was really crazy to me. So I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> and not to veer too much into your talk yesterday, but I think it certainly is a, is a major... You're, you're, you're in the middle of something, discussing something that's critical now. And as a designer, you're doing that as a designer. And yesterday showing work of how design and, and visual communication starting very early on, and, and it's very much centered on America, but in yes. American culture has been from the beginning about the understanding of how visuals combined with words can convey or start to catalyze change and be a strong symbol for change. You know, how does that way of thinking extend itself into your work? Uh, I mean, first of all, just thoughts on that generally, but then how does that extend into your work? I mean, the big, a big part of writing the book for me was to help me feel better and like I could do something in response to what was going on because I felt really helpless but another thing was to motivate designers to become activists and get involved. And a lot of people have said to me afterwards, I didn't even realize I could do that. Like, I could just do that with my design skills. And I make a lot of stuff and I, I have a lot of fundraisers because I don't have a lot of money to give. <laughs> so this is what I can do. And I feel like a lot of people feel really helpless in these times. Like, I can't, you know, if you don't have money to donate and support candidates that you're behind you know, you can knock on doors and you can make phone calls, but it can feel like a drop in the bucket. But as a designer, you have so much power. You have so much you can do. And it makes the people making the work feel, you know, it, it's healing for them to express themselves, just get those feelings out on the page. I heard this crazy story, this illustrator, I was on a panel with him and he told this story about he was standing in front of the School of Visual Arts and this monk approached him in like saffron robes and gave him a card and, and said donation and, and he gave him a dollar or something. And the guy stayed there and he gave, took out another card and handed it to him and he said donation and he was like, no, I'm not giving you more money. And the guy said artist because he was standing in front of the School of Visual Arts and he said yes. And he took out a pad and a pencil and he said draw a monster. And so this artist, Marshall Arisman, so he drew a monster and the guy said, now I've gotten the monster out of you and onto the paper. Donation. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave him $20. But I feel like that's what doing this stuff does. It gets it out of you and onto the page. And you feel better for that moment. And right now in America, we need, we just all feel so bad all the time. <laughs> Anything we can do to feel better, I think, is hugely important. This episode of First Things First is brought to you by Copywell. Copywell is Canada's fastest growing book printer, producing short and long run orders using the latest technology in digital inkjet as well as conventional offset printing. Their online ordering system makes it easy to stay up to date with production processes. Learn more at copywell.com and get a quote for your next print job. There's an idea of expression and freedom of expression and hypersensitivity to ways sometimes we may express ourselves by using, say, you know, off-color words like the word asshole. Yes. And your book, you talk about when creatives can be assholes. Yes. 
That's another, that, I mean, I feel like this is an important thing to say to clients. Um, it's usually a different kind of client, but sometimes creatives can be assholes too, because, you know, in any group of people, they're going to be mean people who are not considerate and not respectful. And I used to work for someone who was a horrible, horrible person. He once threw a soda can, a full soda can at the client, like literally. And I just, I was, it was incomprehensible to me why someone would continue to work with that person. And then there are subtler ways where, where designers can be mean to clients just by disrespecting them or playing off their insecurities or whatever. And I don't think that should be tolerated on either side. So I don't think designers should work with people who treat them badly. And I don't think clients should work with designers who treat them badly. So the chapter is don't work with assholes. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's something worth spending just a little bit more time on because the, in the book, what you describe is how a specific instance, and we don't have to go into the specifics of that instance, but where something that was very clearly hurtful was not seen as, as hurtful. It was seen as interfering with a design solution. Right. And so, I mean, that, that to me is an interesting part of this idea that, you know, the, the perfection of design versus the kind of just being a human being. Right. It's, I think it's design versus art also. I'm, my husband is an artist. You know, he loves nothing more than a blank piece of paper where he can do whatever comes to mind. Nothing scares me more than a blank piece of paper without a problem to solve. Like, I, I don't have, I can't do it, but give me a problem and I'll fill it immediately. So sometimes designers act more like artists, like, no, this is my vision. It doesn't matter what you think. But I think it's a collaboration. It, design is business. It's art and commerce. And you can't leave the commerce part out. And the commerce part is made up of the client and their emotions and their feelings and their needs. So to me, design is more problem solving or, it, you know, on the scale, it leans more towards problem solving than fine art. Yeah, and there's this amazing diagram by Charles and Raheem's that shows these three sort of intersecting shapes. And one is, this is the area of interest for the designer. This is the area of interest for the client. And this is the area of interest for the society. And they all overlap at a place, but there's yes. parts that don't overlap. Sure. And you know, designers are typically working, ideally, in the intersection of those three things. Yes. Although sometimes the interest of the designer and the client may not be the interest of society. But you know what's interesting about a book, and I'm going slightly off script here, but is this is something that is the interest is the interest of the designer because it's something that you've initiated and done, yes. I mean, obviously in collaboration with the publisher. Yes. But in another way, it is actually for the benefit of clients everywhere and, and creative people everywhere. Yeah, right? I think it's only. I mean, I you know the better the project turns out, the better it is for the designer and the better it is for the client. Like everybody wins. And especially if it's a, a good relationship, you both feel good when you're lying in bed at night thinking about the conversations you had during the day. Everybody wins. I mean, that's why I thought of it originally as like a service. Right. <laughs> I was helping designers by talking to clients. And so on the, on the point of those designers that you're helping, one of the things you say in the book also is that it's important to meet prospective candidates in person. Yes. For clients to meet prospective. Yeah. I mean, the, I hate like getting an email asking me to fill out an RFP. Like, I don't even know who this is really. And they want me to spend days doing all this work and I don't really know anything, but meeting in person for a half hour would change everything about what they thought of me, what they thought of our work, what I think of them and how I approach the project. I get to see where they work, what their culture is like. Everything changes if you meet in person once. It's so huge. I've met many clients 
just the one time. And like, but it, it, it shaped the relationship for the, for, you know, the next few years because we met that one time. It's, it is about clients. Oh, that's what the story of the book is. But very much I've, what I find in reading your work and talking to you, you know, face to face is that it is about people and the, the one-to-one engagement, the interaction and the kind yes. of subtlety of that as a part of the design. It's uh, a relationship. Yeah. But the designer client relationship literally defines how well the project will turn out. It really does. Right. Whether they respect you, whether they trust you. I think whether they like you, because it's hard to work with people you don't like, they don't have to love you, but they have to like you. (laughs) Have you ever walked away by having that first meeting and just said, this is not going to work for us? Yeah, I might have done it differently. I might have bid too high. Right. (laughs) The subtle ways of saying no. And then, and if, you know, they want to pay that much, maybe it's worth it. But, um, but yeah, that's more how I've done it after that first meeting, if it just doesn't seem right. But usually it's mutual. I mean, it's rare that you meet somebody and you really love them and they really can't stand you. Like, it, it, it's usually mutual. You probably feel the same way about each other. And so when you're thinking about this act of getting to know someone, and, and I, I think it does apply, too, for people that you are trying to hire. And I'm trying to think about this yes. also from the lens of the, the, the group, the audience here who yes. would cover a spectrum of experiences. In terms of that, the idea of understanding at that early stage in those meetings with a prospective client or job, it's often very difficult. You, you get a gut instinct sometimes. You say, this doesn't feel right, but then you pursue it anyway, or sometimes it's screaming at you. But those, the, to be fair, those moments are pretty rare. And, and more yeah. often than not, you're walking away going, it could be good, or you yeah. find yourself talking yourself into it. How do you... Well, the, the ne- I mean, if you're unsure, the best thing to do, I mean, almost every solution, not that I'm trying... I want you to buy the book, but almost every solution is about talking to the client. Like, so if you have an unsure meeting where you walk away like that, having a phone call saying, I was unclear on a few things. So do you have a design team, another design team that's working on it? It seems like you do. Like, just follow up and ask the questions. It will never fail you to try and get answers. It'll let the client know that you care, first of all, that you want to understand what their process is more. It'll only benefit you. And if you get an answer that you don't like, you know for sure you should walk away. And so what's your position, moving on through the the book, what's your position on giving credit? I I think clients should give credit. (laughs) It's crazy to me that there are contracts that say you can't put it on your website. I would never sign a contract like that. And clients should say who designed something when they announce it. I see, especially with... um, brand identities. When you do a brand identity for a company and then they announce it as though it magically appeared out of nowhere. But they talk about the executive who was responsible for it, but they don't talk about the design team that was responsible for it. And sometimes it's probably because it was done in-house, but that's even more reason to give credit to the people who've done it. You're telling the world, look at what great collaborators we are, and we love our employees so much. And the employees are like, oh my God, they really appreciate me. I love working here. And other designers will want to come and work at the company where they give credit to designers. It's like everybody wins. Also, have you ever seen someone give credit to someone and think, what a jerk? (laughs) Like you only think better of someone when they say, oh, I didn't do this alone. So-and-so really helped a lot. Then you think better of that person. Never worse. So it's crazy to me that more people just don't openly and actively give credit and share the credit for every project. And designers are so often invisible. 
And why do you think that is? Because, you know, I think you've had several experiences with clients who will say, hey, you got to keep this. You sign the notorious NDA and then you're not allowed to talk about it. And that can really hurt a small design firm, too, that suddenly disappears off the radar for a while because the work they're doing, they can't share. Right. So why do you think that that is that? I'm not asking you to (laughs) be on the other side. but I mean, I I imagine it's just this, I don't know, some lawsuit happened to some company at some point. And then it's spread like a virus, this yeah. incredible caution that makes no sense. When a designer isn't going to share stuff before it's done, before it's out in the world, before the company announces it, but once they do, right. they should be able to show as many people as possible, proudly. Yes. And again, that's good for the company. They're saying, I worked really well with this fabulous company. Mm. Look at the great work we did. The company looks better. The designer looks better. Do you think that'll change? Because the, the, it makes such sense what you're saying, and why wouldn't they possibly want to you know, share the love? And sh- as yeah. you say, not just share the love, but say, look, we're, we're great partners and collaborators. It would only win them friends. Do you think it's going to change? Do you, think, do you see it moving in that direction? I think designers have to sort of insist on it. But right. I think a lot of designers are afraid when they get contracts, especially from big companies, If I say no to this, maybe they won't hire me. But contracts are really just first drafts. I actually love contracts because I love rules like that. And I think it's always about hoping for the best and planning for the worst. But I never just take a contract for granted. I literally read every line and I push back on anything that makes me uncomfortable. And most of the time, the lawyers in the big company are like, "Eh, it's just a designer, whatever, we don't really care. (laughs) But you're never going to get your way if you don't ask for it. The worst thing that can happen is they can say, no, that's really important to us. We're sticking with it. But the best thing is you get your way because you asked. You never get anything without asking, ever. That includes first class. (laughs) Uh, So the book is organized in a very, it's it's sort of a handbook kind of a format in the sense that it's numbered. You know, it's it's very sequential. So how do you suggest that a reader uses this book on a day-to-day basis? I mean, I tried to make it sort of the process through a project, but then there are chapters that didn't fit in that and they just got sort of put in the end. But I, I really think you can open to any point and just read. It's a good bathroom book. You can just read <laughs> that length of time, whatever that is, longer chapters for longer times, shorter chapters. But it's, it's very brief nuggets. It's almost like a Twitter book, like a, a brief thing that you can dig into one subject for a few minutes and then you're good. And so, I mean, I have to say, having you know, going through this and reading through it, there's so many moments where you're saying, oh, there's this one client I just love. I wish that they would have this. How, how would you suggest that the people in this room can get this into the hands of their client without, you know, yeah, pissing no. them off? Or No, I definitely thought about that because nobody wants to hand. I mean, one good thing is like first meeting, you can say, oh, here's something I thought you might enjoy. Um, <laughs> but then I had my one big marketing idea, which is you can actually buy it an, and have it sent anonymously. <laughs> There's a bookstore in Austin, Texas, and so it'll come from Austin, Texas, so nobody will know. Um, And it includes a note from me that says, like, you're totally awesome, but somebody thought you might enjoy this. (laughs) (laughs) And it'll be, you know, plain brown wrapper, and they'll get a book for free. (laughs) <laughs> that was my solution. And I'm the one that loses, though, because I can't ever send it to a client, an old <laughs> client. <laughs> so at the end of the day, if you could convey one sort of big idea to anyone who reads this book and say, there's one thing I think you should take away from this, 
what might that be? I have three quotes in the beginning of the book. One is Paul Rand, one is Steve Jobs, and the third one is from Mr. Rogers. And the Mr. Rogers one is, oh, okay, I'll read it the way he said it. <laughs> there are three ways to ultimate success. The first is to be kind, the second way is to be kind, and the third way is to be kind. I know, I'm in Canada, too. <laughs> you guys are very receptive to that. <laughs> in America, it's not like that. <laughs> but it's really, it's so much just about respect. But I feel like if a client read this, they would have empathy for the designer. And, you know, designers automatically love clients. Clients are paying you to do what you love. So we automatically love them and want to work with them and want them to love us even more. We want to prove our worth. We want them to think that what we do is great, but it doesn't go the other way so much. So I want clients to just see it from our perspective for, you know, a bathroom read. So uh, I want to wrap up. I, the first quote is a Steve Jobs quote where it said, he said, it doesn't make sense to hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what to do. And one of the things I would say that I love about this book is that as you read it, I couldn't help but always think about how pertinent it is also for creative teams because there are a lot of things in here that, yes. sure, you want a client to know, but that really fundamentally are the ways that we should think about ourselves and our work as creative teams. Definitely. And as a leader of a creative firm to your team to have them understand how to think about their work. And, yeah, like hovering art directors. Right. <laughs> so I, I, to, to that point, just to say that for me, it was uh, really helpful in that way, too. And so um, there are many ways to experience and, and enjoy and find relevancy with this book. And <laughs> thank so you. thank you for giving it to us. What for you was the most difficult part of this? I mean, were there ever moments where you thought, oh, a client's going to read that and know it was about them or I don't know? Yeah, every single like long term client I have has said, am I in the book? <laughs> and I always say, no, of course you're not in the book. Page 38. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I don't want to create paranoia. I mean, it's really in goodwill that mm -hmm. I yes. wrote this. It's, it's not about, I, I don't want it to be whiny or complainy. I really want it to improve relationships. That's totally the goal going forward. Less looking back. But because so many things happen over and over, it just seemed like, oh, there's some things that keep happening. This must be like a natural thing. But the other thing just for designers to keep in mind, which I didn't learn for like 15 years into owning my own business, is every single client you have, every single one, the like big ones and the little ones are equally insecure as you. They don't know what they're doing. They're scared of looking stupid. And if you keep that in mind, I guess it's like picturing an audience in their underwear. If you keep that in mind... Not that I'm doing that right now. Um, <laughs> but it really does change it, just knowing that they feel as nervous and as scared as an, and as unsure of who they are and what they're doing and whether they're a good person or not, and they wonder about what they said during the day. Everybody's the same. But we're so much on opposite sides of the table that it's hard to remember that. But if you can remember that, it will help your interactions with them greatly. Thank you, Bonnie, very much for joining us. Thank and you. For joining us in Toronto. Thank, thank you. To learn more about Bonnie and her work, visit 8.5.com and get her book, Dear Client, online or at your favorite bookstore. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. 
Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD, the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design. 